The Impact Driver Podcast is a production of the Climbing Business Journal. Today's episode is brought to you by Essential Climbing and Strati Climbing. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Holly Chen. I am a route setter, journalist, and contributing writer at the CBJ. The other voice you'll hear today is Abby Tran. I had fallen in love with bouldering and I was just so enamored by the movement and the art that I just bugged, bugged, bugged the head setter to let me try out setting and he finally gave me a chance. Abby has been setting since 2015 and is currently the assistant head setter for circuit gyms in Portland, Oregon. Abby is a rock climber at heart. Well, she most definitely loves compy, flashy, eye-catching climbs that are usually favored by social media algorithms, she takes a lot of pride in setting good old-fashioned rock climbs. Abby has set for numerous local competitions, and when she does set for one, she makes sure to include a good balance of both styles. Today, Abby will be spraying some beta, most of which will apply to any setter stateside, or globally for that matter. I incorporate several different types of training for my job. Um, forerunning, maintenance, power washing, um, all these tasks wear on your body. So most of my workouts look like resistance band training, mobility flows, lots of dynamic stretching, light fingerboard hangs, um, evening out the pulling that I do all the time with pushing exercises. Abby also sprays some beta on navigating the setting industry as a shorter than average setter. While the advice may not be applicable to every setter, the ability to set for a wide range of climbers, heights, and body types is the mark of any good setter. My height is at 4'11", and my wingspan is also at 4'11". We also discuss the gray areas of inclusive and accessible setting. Where do you draw that line? Is too reachy, but if they were to change anything, the value or the quality would go down simply for the sake of this accessibility. So I try to be very careful with me saying, we need another hand there. But if the hand goes there, and finally, I, being a great host, got distracted by a cat at some point. Ooh, cat. Sorry, I got distracted. Charlie. <laughs> um, Abby's cat just joined the call. <laughs> all right, I won't spoil it all in the introduction. We'll let Abby and our conversation take it from here. Before we dive in, here is a quick word from our sponsors. Essential Climbing is a new name for a group of brands that have served climbers, gyms, and home walls for decades. They distribute premium quality polyurethane holds manufactured at Aragon, import fiberglass macros in wood volumes, have a line of patented adjustable walls, and even design and install custom climbing walls and padded floors. Their brands include Kimiki, Everactive, Expression, Squadra, Lapis, and Axis. Learn more at EssentialClimbing.com. Strati Climbing installs and refurbishes incredible landing surface for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. Since all floors wear down over time, Strati often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the life to save money and avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Strati have been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at StratiClimbing.com. Hey, Abby, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, where are you calling from? Thank you so much for having me, Holly. I'm here in Portland, Oregon. How is the fall looking like over there? Do you see a lot of like cool colors? We only have gold in Colorado, not a whole lot of fancy stuff over here. Oh, lots of reds and oranges and yellows and lots and lots of green because it is now the rainy season. So the green is popping off over here. It's gorgeous. Wow, that's so cool. Oh man, I, I'm making a mental note. I have to visit Oregon in the fall at some point. That sounds really nice. I actually really like the rain. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, then this is a perfect place for you. And yes, I yeah. highly suggest it because then you can also go see all the waterfalls because of all the rain. The waterfalls are also looking real good. So yeah, oh, come man. on up here. It's great. Awesome. I might take you up on that offer someday. <laughs> anyway, so I'm really excited to have you on the show tonight because I really wanted to tackle a topic that I think setters would really benefit from, especially setters who may not fall under the you know widely represented height, so somewhere in like the five six to the five ten range. Um, before we dive into that topic, though, Abby, can you tell me a little bit of how you got started in the setting industry? Absolutely. I started working as just a desk worker at this tiny little gym in Searcy, Arkansas, and I was watching the setters you know, do their thing once a week. And I had fallen in love with bouldering and I was just so enamored by the movement and the art that I just bugged, bugged, bugged the headsetter to let me try out setting. And he finally gave me a chance. And that was a gym where we only had one driver and everybody else used T wrenches. <laughs> I think every setter out there, no matter how new, everyone should set with a T-wrench at least once. Like it really teaches once. you uh, how to avoid elbow tendonitis, for example. <laughs> yeah, things oh, yeah. like that. Important skills in the setting industry. Uh, when you started setting, what were some skills that came really easy for you? And what were some things that did not? I think the easiest thing that came to me was just the movement itself. I love dancing and moving, and I wanted to incorporate that on the wall. And the flow came pretty naturally. What, however, did not come naturally was simply the construction, knowing how tight a bolt should be on the wall, what like ergonomic holds should feel like, things like that. I was just having kind of a hard time with that at first. Plus, I was setting on walls that was made out of that, like that plaster stuff. You know, it wasn't like gotcha. plywood or anything. And so learning how to make holds flush and also safe and not spin. It, I've, I've always, I learned how to set in a very kind of rough environment. So that was probably the biggest <laughs> curve for me, I think, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... Well, at least in my opinion, when you can set on those kind of walls, you can set on every kind of wall. Do you agree? Oh, yes. After that, it was a breeze. <laughs> I think most people, if you're considering stepping into setting or you've just stepped into setting, a lot of people have uncertainties of stepping into a career like in any other career would. What were some of your uncertainties or fears stepping into this career? I carry this fear with me always, always have. My biggest fear seems to always be not being good enough. I mean, even now, after having been setting for so long, I tend to have this imposter syndrome speaking unkind and often untrue words into my head. Um, and being a small female automatically plays into that, of course. Uh, I'm always going to have to feel the need to prove myself, my value, my strength, um, and my abilities in every aspect of the word. And so, yeah, I think coming into a setting position, my fear was and has always been, what if nobody likes my climbs? What if my climbs aren't good? What if I'm just not good enough? I can empathize with that. I think most setters can empathize with that. Uh, what are some techniques that you used or developed over the years to kind of maybe dampen that imposter syndrome or that nagging voice in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. I personally want to know some of that because I have that too. In the beginning, my tactic was simply to learn as much as I could. I told myself, well, I can't look stupid and I can't be bad if I know every single thing. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> that's close to impossible to do and pretty naive. But that was my tactic at first. It was to listen to a ton of podcasts, watch a lot of videos, go to as many gyms as possible, talk to as many route setters as possible. Um, I wanted to be an expert in my field, even though I was far from that. Now, at a 
healthier stage in my life. I'm still seeking those resources. I'm still watching videos. I'm still listening to podcasts. I'm still talking to other setters. However, my self-talk has become much kinder. I've become much more gentle with myself. Uh, I was told once, which I'm sure this has been said before, but I've been told to speak to myself like I'm talking to somebody that I love. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that was actually really helpful, even though it sounds very cheesy. Uh, I would never tell even a brand new setter that she doesn't belong there. I would never tell an experienced setter that she doesn't belong here. So why would I tell that to myself? So um, lots of intentional practice of my self-talk, I think, has been honestly the biggest help for all of it. I really like that point. And as cheesy as it might sound, I mean, things are cheesy for a reason. I think they're cheesy because people resonate with it because it can be received by a lot of people and it's good general advice, right? So are you saying that one of the ways that you try to uh, combat imposter syndrome and negative self-taught is to just continuously be curious and learn? Yes, I think that is a huge part of it is to continue doing that research on your own. I have not worked at many gyms that provide professional development. I have often had to go look for that on my own. And because route setting is becoming more of a sustainable job and career, uh, more of those opportunities are popping up. However, there is still not a ton out there for setters with experience as myself. For example, I don't really have a ton of interest in pursuing my L's. I would, I think a part of me wants to because right now that seems to be the only option. Otherwise, there are a lot of setting clinics for newer and intermediate setters, which is awesome. And I am so excited about that. But what I am always looking for is more of an educational clinic for season setters who only set in commercial gyms <laughs> or for mm-hmm. local competitions, things like that. You do have to be a little bit more creative in where you look for inspiration and where you get your educational material and things like that. But yes, always stay curious, always be thirsty to learn more and to become better. Hmm. I think a large part of the industry, myself included, share that frustration with you is just Aside from USAC levels, which really primarily focus on comp setting, it's really difficult. And we it's easy to be like, oh, wow, that move looks amazing. It's been set at a World Cup. Let's try to recreate that in my gym. And I think that that's an amazing way to learn new movement. But at the same time, it is pretty far from what your average commercial gym might need. So is there no clinic out there to teach me how to take my, like, ability to set a flowy climb from 90% to 99%, right? Like, I really wish that the industry would eventually move in that direction to offer every setter, no matter what level, a way to further their education. That would be great. And that is what what I'm always looking for and hoping for. So the main topic that I want to tackle with you today, Abby, is nuanced tips for smaller setters. Um, Abby, do you mind sharing with the audience how tall you are and your wingspan? Yes, my height is at 4'11", and my wingspan is also at 4'11". Ah, um, so I want to tell the audience a story. I met Abby a couple of years ago at a setter showdown in Texas. And I remember at that point, I was relatively green. Um, I had only been setting at two gyms, and I didn't really know the setting community that well. I turned around and saw Abby pick up a heavy-duty 15-foot A-frame and move it across the gym at breakneck speeds like it weighed nothing. (laughs) And at that point in my career, I was trying to hide how scared I was of extension ladders. Just, you know, I just pretend that, hey, this is just a normal thing. I pick these up. In reality, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to kill somebody. (laughs) So that was what I thought. How does she do that? And that's why I want to talk to Abby today is because there are a lot of setters out there who do not fall into the 
average height of, you know, 5'6 to 5'10. That is what we see in the setting industry. So I believe that education um, to help smaller setters uh, make that learning curve more manageable is lacking. I wish I had someone teach me how to pick up an A-frame as a smaller person. I wish someone, oh, by the way, I am 5'2 with an even wingspan, so taller than Abby, but not, you know, not a giant. Um, so, <laughs> so to getting to this topic, Abby, what are some route setting job requirements that may be harder to come by for a smaller person compared to your average size dude? Uh, yes, first, Holly, I would like to say that my dream height is 5'2". <laughs> um, <laughs> you're a perfect height. I'm a perfect height. It's all fine. Um, we're so all uh, we're all perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, as you were talking about job requirements, yeah, the first thing that came to my mind was moving ladders and moving volumes. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. I I cannot tell you how awkward it is to hold a volume that's even four feet wide. My my wingspan is 4'11", but trying to carry a volume that's almost as tall as me mm-hmm. is one of those awkward things. I do it, but it's not pretty and it's not fun. And <laughs> I will often ask for help. And I'm not afraid to ask for help, um, but I can do it on my own, but it's not fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> moving uh, ladders is an absolute struggle. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like those are two that are pretty difficult for, um, anyone smaller than I think five, five, honestly, it's just Mm -hmm. hard things to do. Um, aside from that, uh, aside from that, however, the hardest part of my job is pulling my hardest at full extension. I don't think taller people often understand that sometimes a move for them can feel two grades harder for shorter people. And it's simply because we are having to generate power from totally extended arms and legs. So one of the ways that I've trained for this, other than simply having to climb like that most of the time, uh, was climbing on a spray wall, actually. Uh, I was able to to practice my contact strength, um, my pull through power little by little because I could use those intermediate holds to just bump and bump and bump and then eventually like, try to throw and catch to those. I actually now use the campus board to practice my long throws and to practice my bumping. A lot of is in my shoulders. So a lot of my training has involved shoulder mobility and strength. And that has been, I think, the biggest help for me. Um, and then picking up (laughs) bladders and volumes and being able to hold them. Uh, I do a lot of leg workouts. (laughs) So those, (laughs) those are the two like biggest things that I, I helped myself in. Uh Uh-huh. I have not heard of the spray wall idea for short people. And I think I'm going to take that into my own training as well, because five, two is not short. But yeah, like I said, I'm not a giant either. So I'm definitely sometimes just feeling like, how am I supposed to bend my legs in January if I'm on tiptoes? Right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it is very difficult. (laughs) Exactly. And I am, when I put myself in those positions or if I set a powerful or somewhat reachy problem, I'm always thinking, okay, there are people shorter than me. There are team kids who are going to be training on this. And I have one of my favorite coworkers actually told me, he said, you know, ignore boxing tall people out. They can be boxed out every now and then. They can be scrunchy every now and then. And I took that advice to heart. Or at least I'm trying. Um, so let's go back to some of the technical aspects of ladders and volumes. Uh, for me, when picking up a big volume, one of my tips is to put a jug, down climb jug, dirty hold, whatever it is, onto the volume, whether it be a bolt or a screw, and then lifting the volume that way. But in terms of ladders, I just eventually got used to it and believe the job made me stronger. However, what tips do you have that can help a setter of our size or smaller kind of fast track that process in terms of picking up things that 
are going to mess with your center of gravity, essentially. Yes. Um, so, yes, adding jugs to volumes is an excellent idea. Um, I think anybody should do it, even just to like not hurt your uh, hurt your tendons or anything on the edges of the volume. I think mm-hmm. using jugs is is really helpful. Uh, as far as the ladders, yeah, you get used to figuring out where the best balance point is. Uh, I, for some reason, can only carry it on my right shoulder and not my left. I guess because I'm mm. right dominant, but for some reason it hurts more on my left and I haven't figured out why. But mm-hmm. I, I found that stabilizing exercises help with that as well. Um, practicing um, standing on one foot, even though you don't carry a ladder with one foot, practicing how that feels kind of being off balance and working on core strength. A lot of it just comes down to being able to stabilize yourself in your with your legs and your core. But it's yeah, it's getting used to it and you'll get it after doing it a few times. Do you incorporate any additional training that kind of deal with these aspects of the job that are related to weight or, you know, awkward centers of gravity? Yeah, I incorporate several different types of training for my job. Uh, my primary concern is injury prevention. Uh, I, set sol- I set boulders three days a week um, for running, maintenance, power washing, um, all these tasks wear on your body. So most of my workouts look like resistance band training, mobility flows, lots of dynamic stretching, light fingerboard hangs, um, evening out the pulling that I do all the time with pushing exercises. Um, I've been doing a lot of mobility recently because the older I get, the more my joints hurt. And it's the saddest thing. <laughs> But yeah, I, I do a lot of mobility training and uh, I, do, I don't do um, strength training as much anymore because of how much I'm setting and doing other things at the gym. Uh, so my strength training has gone down significantly, but I still work out three times a week simply to make sure that I'm not hurting myself at work. Um, you mentioned antagonistic like training, balancing out the pull and the push. And personally, I have found that so helpful for me, just, you know, helping my body not crack like a glow stick every time I get out of bed. And, you know, a part of me wants to go, hey, I'm I'm young, I'm hip, I'm cool, I'm, I got lots of years left. But in reality, like 200 years ago, we lived till 45. So technically, by that standard, I'm in my middle age. <laughs> Don't quote me on that or, or fact check me on that. I'm not sure about the numbers that I just spewed out. so um, what are some of the uh, major antagonistic exercises that you do can you run us through a few of those sure so obviously I do a lot of pull-ups lots of things involving my shoulders and my biceps so Mm -hmm. I just even that out by doing dips push-ups if I can and have the capacity for it bench presses, um, anything to Mm -hmm. where I'm just using more of my body than I would just on a regular work day. Um, So I also do a lot of squats and deadlifts and J curls. Squats is an interesting one to mention because we end up, you know, well, maybe more deadlifts and squats because we actually end up in that position picking up heavy baskets holds and or, I guess that's or true. volumes all the time that's true so as much as it being a balancing exercise is actually just making you stronger for your job in general right that's true yes so i guess another thing i would add is uh balance so and lots of different types of yoga poses i wish i knew the names of yoga poses but you know balancing on one foot um Mm -hmm. bringing one of one of the exercises i've been doing a lot recently is standing on one leg and bringing my leg up and over and behind me and back down Mm -hmm. um working on my balance and core but also my my hip mobility and flexibility which has been very helpful Mm -hmm. huh huh if I had a notebook, I'd be scribbling these down frantically. But thankfully, we have a recording. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, the team because when I was lucky that when I first started and I was you know smaller than the rest of the team, I had a very very supportive team at the BRC. Um, the Border Rock Club is where I started, 
and they were helpful in terms of either uh oh cat sorry i got this back early um abby's cat just joined the call <laughs> uh so my team was very helpful in terms of helping me with some of the things that had a steeper learning curve um, and some of the more supportive day- ways that they helped me was to make sure I knew that my feelings of fear were valid, that some skills are just going to be harder to pick up than others, and it's okay if you don't get it um, right on a first try. Um, I want to ask you, what are some of the supportive ways that you've seen your team step up, whether for you or for another setter, whether they be of average height or under or above it? What are some ways that you can support someone who may be struggling to pick up a skill? That is a great question. And I also want to say that I'm so glad that you had that good experience because I know so many people don't have that. Um, I've also been very fortunate to have a pretty good experience with all the set teams and gym managers that I've worked with. Um, Honestly, the best way that I have received support um, is empathy. There, there's the obvious offering. Hey, can I help you carry that volume? <laughs> but, but really, mm-hmm. it is, it is so comforting and refreshing to be seen and understood by the widely represented. Uh, one of my coworkers, Josiah, is always paying attention to how much harder I'm pulling than himself or our other coworkers. He sees that, calls it out, and says that we need to make sure that we're all climbing as close to the same grade as possible. Because, like I said, a, a like I have said, a V4 may feel like a V6 um, for me if the moves are largely long. Um, But what can be misinterpreted as whining about being too short is the frustration on my end being so tired of climbing full extension all the time and, and jumping for holds where others simply can reach through. It's exhausting. It can be discouraging. However, if it is not communicated in an effective and constructive way, it may just come off as whining. So yeah, empathy really on all sides is appreciated and very much needed. You make an excellent point because, I mean, whether that be a setter or a a member coming up to you to tell you that this climb was reachy or you box somebody out, like you're never going to tell them like, oh, you're just not strong enough. You're not. You're never gonna say that. You're gonna help them out, or maybe even step back and be like, "Huh, is that climb reachy? Maybe I just kind of didn't think about adding a foot somewhere." So, awesome point. Um, I'm gonna ask a slightly more, you know, sad question. What are some less supportive ways that you've seen, or situations that you've encountered, and how can people who fit into the more widely represented size avoid making? mistakes like that. The most common thing that happens is setters being so emotionally attached to what they have created that they are not willing to make those adjustments. Now, I would say that I am pretty fair. As long as I can reach the majority of a set then I'm good. But if there's, say there's, say I can do all the moves on the nine, but the eight is too reachy. But if they were to change anything, the value or the quality would go down simply for the sake of this accessibility. So I try to be very careful with me saying, we need another hand there. But if the hand goes there, it's going to drop a grade. Or if we move holds in, then you lose the movement and the and the climb isn't as much fun anymore. I try to be very aware of what I'm asking of my fellow setters. And for the most part, the people that I work with have been open to those suggestions. When I have experienced setters being too attached to their climbs, it's when things start to get just a little bit nasty. I have had people say, I just don't think that you're good at this move, or I I don't think that you're strong enough for this move. And again, I try to be self-reflective on that, being like, okay, I know what my weaknesses are. I know what my strengths are. And there are times when I say, oh, I can't do this move, but I really think it's just because I am not good at that move and I, I just can't do that. Or I'm not strong enough to do this move. I'm totally comfortable saying that. Where it can become very unsupportive 
is when I say, no, I'm really good at that move. And the set, the other setter is telling me, well, you just can't, you just can't do it. You're not, I don't, I don't believe that you're good at this move because you can't do it. There needs to be trust on all sides. If the rest of my team is saying, no, Abby, this is on grade. This move is appropriate for this grade. Um, I have to trust that. And I also have to be a strong enough leader to be able to say, no, this move really does need to change. And to have the rest of my team say, all right. <laughs> um, and that, mm-hmm. that, can be, that can be tricky because I never want to play that power card in an unhealthy way. And I also want to be trusted. So there's, it's, it's all a balance. It's all a, a give and take. From, from all sides. So um, yes, I have experienced um, unsupportive times of when I'm not listened to, I'm not trusted, um, and I'm just sort of ignored. But thankfully, mm-hmm. I have not experienced that a ton in, uh, within my setting teams. For every bad story that I hear in the setting industry, I hear two good ones. So I'm hoping that if that trend keeps up, it means that we're moving in a positive and sustainable direction for the industry. And it is still a very young industry. So fingers crossed, right? Yes, that is always the hope. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about the leaders in this industry. And with all of the things that you just mentioned about empathy, and I know that you just touched a little bit about, you know, leadership and when you should step in and how that line can be really hard to walk. Let's say if we have a leader who does fit into the widely represented demographic, how can they incorporate some of that to create a supportive environment for all setters, all climbers, whether they be widely represented or underrepresented? I would say that having a general atmosphere of trust and respect goes a really long way. When people feel respected and trusted, there is some freedom to try new things. There is courage to speak up when something doesn't feel right or sound right. And communication is positive. So one of the things that leaders can do is making sure that A, they're thanking their setters and their coworkers. Uh, making other, others feel appreciated can go a really long way. Being open to criticism themselves in a way that doesn't make it sound like they're taking it personally, which can be hard. I example, I for example, wear my heart on my sleeve. And when people tell me they're like, oh, this move isn't working or this move is bad, I often am never upset at them. I always am like, oh, <laughs> and which is why I'm working on my self-talk. Mm-hmm. It's almost often directed at myself, that negativity. But if you as a leader can accept criticism in a graceful way, that can also encourage others to do the same. That's awesome. That's some startling self-awareness. I love it. And I think people often just think that there's some magic formula that these excellent leaders are employing. But no, it's just trust and respect and communicate with your coworkers and your and your employees like it's is it that simple it is that simple right it is yes okay let's kind of flip the script for a minute because we talked about things on a setting job that may be a little harder for someone with a smaller frame to come by let's talk about the opposite what are some job requirements of a setter that may be easier to come by for a smaller human Well, aside from shorter people in the setting world to be involved in USAC comps. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's the standard that people go to. Oh, we hired this short person because they can do reach checks and set youth comps. I'm like, well, well, yes, but every competent setter should be able to do a reach check and set a youth comp. One of the things that I think shorter people bring to the setting world is just another perspective. While I do think that there is a general consensus about what a V6 should feel like, depending on the rock type, outside specifically, uh, who Mm -hmm. it was who developed that area, in gyms, Mm -hmm. even in one city, 
whose setters, who the setters are, what their owners think about grades, or even what their owners want their members to experience. Grades can differ so dramatically across the sport. And of course, I, I mentioned before, body type, strengths and weaknesses can affect the feeling of a grade. Um, but one of the things that I think everybody can benefit from is watching as many different body types on the wall as possible. As a shorter climber, watching a 6'4 climber climb one of my routes is fascinating because that's not how my brain works. I can guess what a taller climber is going to do on one of my routes, but actually watching the decisions that they make on the wall is fascinating to me, not just as a setter, but as a climber. And so I think setters benefit greatly by watching shorter people climb on their routes to understand movement better. So really, we're doing the industry a service by showing the many different ways that a route can be climbed. <laughs> it's so fun. It is. I agree with that. And it, it goes beyond just like, I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit, but strength, right? Like I've seen really flexible people who can put their foot above their head and then pull through that. And I'm like, well, you just broke my beta boot to, to bits, but I don't mind it for a second because that was amazing. Yeah. I, your, your perspective is so awesome because my first thought was, I guess we fit behind walls better, <laughs> which is just a really surface way to look at things. But I'm, I'm glad that you have that perspective to share because it is really eye-opening. Um, yeah, so with all of this um, about reach and, and body types, let's move on because I also want to talk about your setting and your climbing philosophy. Um, I'm wondering, what are some of your favorite styles to set and why? Like, for example, does your, 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 your strength play into it or does your body type play into it or does none of that play into it? I want to know that. What I have preferred has changed over time. Like I said at the beginning, I was very focused on movement. Movement is for sure, I think, the most important part of climbing. Don't get me wrong. However, in recent years, I have been really excited about aesthetics. Go on. I am by nature an artist. I have always loved creating things, drawing, painting, all the things. And using plastic holds on the wall to create beautiful shapes is one of my favorite things. And if it just so happens to climb nice, that's also pretty great. That being said, I do not, or at least I try not to sacrifice movement for aesthetics. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I really like creating a visually appealing climb. Aside from that, I love a good flow. I love being able to put handholds and footholds exactly where your body wants them to go. So if you get on the wall and you go up left hand, you're like, oh, I have a per perfect foot placement to go Gaston over here. Oh, and I have another perfect pl foot placement to match and lie back. I love that feeling of your body just knowing exactly what to do on the wall. So that's probably one of my favorite types of route to set. But I also love a good wrestle. You know what I'm talking about? You put a big old macro, macro on the wall and you got to mm -hmm. find the good spot on it and you got to wrestle with it a little bit to like work your way up or move your body over or anything. Totally different, but also one of my other favorite things to say. That's awesome because there's such opposite like ends of the spectrum in terms of movement. One is like, oh, they look like a ballerina on the wall. They look amazing. And the other one's like, they look like a beach whale, but... <laughs> They're doing it, and it's amazing. <laughs> I know. That is a very interesting perspective. I think most setters, myself included, prefer to set within their strength. or or And you have just, like, this wide spectrum. And, I mean, I kind of aspire to be like that at this point. I'm going to try to set a wrestle tomorrow. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that makes rock climbing and setting so much fun. Just the, Absolutely. the wide spectrum. I agree. And yeah, it goes back to what you said about different body types in the wall. Like every body type is going to do each of these moves differently. And the more you watch them, the more you're going to understand 
the basics and the physics of rock climbing movement, or even just decision making. Like some people would rather crimp the foot chip over making that long move. Right? Absolutely. Like, what about what kind of climbing style do you excel at, and why? This has also changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, right now in my life, I love a good techie climb. One of the reasons I fell in love with rock climbing is probably the same as most other people, the problem solving. So while I do love a good flow, there's something about figuring out the sequencing, figuring out where I need to keep tension in my body, figuring out how much effort I need to put into each move. I love the ticky tacky figuring outings of a route. It's one of my favorite things. Um, The team over at Movement in Portland actually does an excellent job at this. I go over there anytime I like really want to use my brain. I love a techie climb. I love that because the two questions I just asked you, I'm hoping to set up context for the next question, which is one of the things that I really want to tackle with, you know, grades and varying body sizes, because you touched on this before, uh, people of different body sizes or types or strength are going to experience grades differently. So for you, in your opinion, uh, the grade spectrum, um, how accurate does that feel for you? Inside, outside, um, how often do you think a V6 is a V6 and a V10 is a V10? Grades are such a tricky subject for me, exactly for the reasons that we talked about. I do think that the climbing world has done a pretty good job at figuring out what a true V6 feels like. But even still, depending on what the problem is, it still may feel way harder to me, way easier to me even sometimes. Like I'm very comfortable and confident on tiny little crimps. But as soon as my hands need to go around a pinch where I, I my hand physically cannot reach around the pinch, it's a V12. I can't hold on to it. So depending on that, um, I don't know. Grades can just, they, sometimes they just don't make any sense. Um, like the tallest person, the tallest person on my team is 6'3 with a 6'6 wingspan. And I, of course, am in the total opposite end. He can set a V1 that he just reaches. He's like, oh yeah, this is a V1. And I'm over here jumping with all of my might. But all of his six plus foot friends are saying, oh yeah, this is a, this is a V1. <laughs> and everybody, you know, under five five is saying, ah, this feels like a three or a four. Again, across gyms, across the world, it's just, it's all going to be convoluted. So while I think that grades can be a good way to measure progress, it's not the only way to measure progress. And so the only way that I can mentally handle grades when setting for them is in my own gym uh, or at least in a gym where I know what the other grades feel like. So say I'm setting a three in my gym. I'm like, okay, well, I, at least I have to, I have it to compare to the other threes in the gym. Like a circuit three is not going to feel like a PRG three. Um, but if I go to PRG and I set over there, I will set a three like they will set a three. Like I'm, I'm going to take that into account wherever I end up setting. So that is how little I think of grades. I kind of like your approach to it because it does not put your self-worth in grades. And going back to, yeah, yeah, it does not. And like I, like you said, we should use grades to measure progress to an extent, but just because you don't climb a V10 does not make you any less of a wonderful human being. No. So for anyone out there who's listening and you think that climbing V10 will solve all your problems, it might solve some of them, but definitely not all. <laughs> right. Um, or not even your self-worth as a climber, but even your progress as a climber. I, I've had to tell multiple clients. I, I do private lessons as well. I've had to tell multiple mm-hmm. clients that just because they climbed three sixes last week, and they can't climb this one six, they get they get so fixated on the grade and what they think they should be able to climb. And that's just, 
they're going to continually be disappointed if they keep that mindset. Yes, exactly. And what you mentioned earlier about grades and climbing gyms and how each gym has their own B3, like that was one of the first things that I learned as a guest setter. When I went to a gym, sometimes I'd arrive a little early or, you know, come a day before and try the climbs in their gym to be like, okay, this is what a V3 is in their gym. This is what a V6 is in their gym. Like if I take my definition of a V6 from Colorado and I went to Arizona and set it there, it might be too easy. It might be too hard. And it's kind of going to make you look like a bad guest setter. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's a great point to bring up. Um, and you touched on the feelings of, you know, self-worth a little bit, because that's kind of segues into the next question that I want to ask you is that when grades don't feel accurate for you, um, like you said, this three V6s feel great for the client and the next week they can't climb this V6, the feelings are understandably going to feel negative mm-hmm. and, we tackled this a little bit earlier in this episode where you talked about imposter syndrome, but when those feelings are negative, how do you as a setter, as a climber, handle it with a optimistic or even just a neutral outlook? Because of the position that I'm in, um, I'm the assistant head setter at my gym. Because of this position, there is a part of my responsibility that falls under having the final say. So this does put a decent amount of pressure on me from myself, from my team. But I do think that it it still has to come back to trust and the opinion of my team as well. So I do have gut feelings to situations. So if I feel like, oh, man, that three does feel harder than any other three three in the gym. And if, if, if a climb feels harder than the intended grade, I do have a negative feeling towards that because my three climbers are going to come in and be like, I can't climb this three. That's crazy because I can climb the other threes because we want our clientele to have fun and to have a good experience. And most people, when their expectations are not met, they're no longer having fun, which is unfortunate you would hope as a setter that they would look at this climb and say, what a fun challenge. But not everybody has that open mindset. (laughs) Most people have very closed mindsets in regards to challenges and how it affects their personal growth. So my attitude is typically negative at first, especially in the moderate and lower grades. I feel this guilt and almost feel a little bit protective over our clientele. (laughs) Understandably. So yeah, that's usually a negative feeling. But also, (laughs) on the other end, say we feather bag an eight. Then I'm thinking, oh, I'm worried that this eight is too easy. Our eight climbers are going to be so disappointed. They're going to flash it and be like, well, that wasn't very fun. I didn't have to try very hard or I got it in like two goes, whatever. What I've been trying to do more of, I've been trying to look at the feather bagging as this is going to be someone's first eight. And they're going to be so excited that they got their first eight. Sometimes that has to be my mindset in order for me to get through the process of grading. I One thing that I took away from that is the word feather bag. Is that, am I just like not cool anymore and I don't know the the cool hip terminology why have I never heard of that before but at the same time it makes so much sense feather bag opposite of sandbag right yes well let me be very clear you are very cool Holly um (laughs) yes feather bagging is the opposite of sandbagging so we don't want to sandbag people in our gyms when I and the reason I say that is because again We want our clients to have a fun time. And if they're falling off of everything, it's no longer a fun time. But also, we don't want a feather bag because the same results can happen. One of the reasons people love climbing is the figuring out the puzzle, the being challenged. If everything is too easy and they're just flashing everything, who knows? Maybe people enjoy that. And I'm sure people enjoy that. Ultimately, grades are important, even though they can be silly. But it all comes down, especially in the commercial setting world, consistency 
I guess. And that's very hard to achieve. And so when there is not consistency, um, especially from a leadership perspective, that can be kind of frustrating. And for the rest of the set team, confusing. And for the clientele, confusing. In addition to the consistency, the occasional feather bag or the sandbag yeah. must be balanced out. Yes. Yes. Okay. Huh. Those are solid advice um, that I will take and the rest of the climbing world will take as well. Uh I say this a lot, but I genuinely mean it when I say it, but I could talk to you all night, <laughs> but I want to be respectful of your time and we are coming to an end of the podcast. I want to end on a fun note. Abby, what is something that you are really looking forward to in the coming year, in 2024? Well, in February, I am finally leaving my 20s. I'm hitting <gasps> that dirty 30. and. Wow. I'm leaving my 20s with a bang. I'm going to take myself on vacation and it's going to be a great time. <laughs> That's awesome. Where are you going for vacation? Hopefully Hawaii. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Abby, you're going to have so much fun there, whether it be climbing or surfing or just, you know, becoming a potato on a beach. <laughs> All of them sound awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Abby. This has been an awesome conversation. I hope I get to sling some plastic with you again soon. That would be awesome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. big thank you to Abby Tran for taking the time to share her thoughts and insights. The Impact Driver podcast is a production of the Climbing Business Journal. I'm your host, Holly Chen. Today's episode is sponsored by Essential Climbing and Strati Climbing. It was edited and produced by myself, Scott Rennick, and the team at CBJ. Our theme music is by Devin Dabney. The transcript and web content is edited by Naomi Stevens. Special thanks to Gabby Eck, Sarah Kirkpatrick, and Hope Rose. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Abby. Check us out next time. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a shout on social media and subscribe to CBJ at climbingbusinessjournal.com.